Amen. I tell you what, if I didn't want to preach after that, I'd have to check my own pulse, wouldn't I? Okay, well, grab a Bible and turn to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 9. Uh, we are in our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. We've reached a section where, a significant uh, section where really all the teaching of this section can be summarized under the large umbrella of a kingdom mindset. As Jesus describes what it what it looks like to be a part of his kingdom, and what a kingdom mindset looks like as you serve him. So let's turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to read verses 49 through 50 to get started this morning, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 11 as we continue the message this morning. But to save on time, let's begin at Luke chapter 9, verses 49 through 50. Hear God's word this morning. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that your word would do its work in our hearts today open our ears to listen open our minds to comprehend open our hearts to receive your word this day we pray in Jesus name amen he was only 19 years old he was taking on an enormous task at such a young age. So I would not hold anything against him if his knees were knocking somewhat that morning as he approached the stage. It was a Sunday morning in the spring, April of 1854, when this 19-year-old young man took the pulpit at New Park Street Chapel. He was falling in the long line of some great predecessors who were giants of the faith, such as Benjamin Keach and Dr. John Gill. And I'm sure there were some people in the audience that thought, is this young punk qualified for the task before him? He would go on to pastor that church for a 38-year tenure. He would preach over 3,600 sermons, and the congregation would be revitalized into the thousands. The church's name would change. The church's location would change. And he would receive a great nickname known as the Prince of Preachers. Who am I talking about this morning? Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But although Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached over 3,600 sermons, thousands of people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ during his ministry, and still to this day, people are ministered to by his sermons and his writings and his devotionals. He was not free from criticism. In fact, one of the harshest and consistent criticisms that Charles Haddon Spurgeon received was that when he preached, he wasn't eloquent. He talked too much like the blue-collar worker changing 
oil at the local mechanics. It was too plain spoken was the criticism. And so what I have for you this morning is a picture that hangs in my office normally, although I took it off the wall this morning. And these are recorded. What's recorded on this picture are the words, the first words that Charles Haddon Spurgeon said on that April Sunday morning, 1854. It says, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's first words at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was used to be known as New Park Street Chapel. Here's what he says. I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person... Of Jesus Christ. I'm never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. Me neither, Spurgeon. And I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. Well, I could die happy as a Baptist some days, but I'm an ARP. But if I am asked what, what is my creed, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. You see, my venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, has left a body of divinity, admirable and excellent in its way. But the body of divinity which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is not his system or any other human treatise, but Jesus Christ. What was the point? Charles Haddon Spurgeon Spurgeon was telling that congregation that day, Dr. Gill and I are on the same team because we are on team Jesus. And what matters most is not whether or not you remember Dr. Gill, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, or Tanner Klein, or even any of my predecessors. What matters is that you know Jesus Christ. I want to ask you the question, the title of this morning's sermon is this. Are we on the same team? Are we? That's what Jesus is talking about in verses 49 through 50, is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're all supposed to be on team Jesus. And I think... Quickly, you would say, Tanner, oh, you're preaching to the choir this morning. But before you tune out, there are two facts that we learn about Jesus' kingdom in the passages we're going to take a look at this morning. There are two facts about a kingdom mindset that I think we need to take a look at these facts this morning. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to check our hearts and see how we measure up, how we compare to these two facts about Jesus' kingdom, about Jesus' team. The first fact about Jesus' team is this. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. This is the first fact you got to understand about a kingdom mindset. If you're going to be on team Jesus, you cannot be neutral about Jesus Christ. See, what happens here in verses 49 through 50 is that John, who is the beloved gospel, a beloved disciple of Jesus, who wrote John's gospel, strolls up to Jesus. He says, Jesus, we've got a problem. 
He says, Master, we saw some young man over here. We don't know who his name is. Ironically, amazingly, the Gospels are very, very silent on the details about this man, which curiosity just kills us about him, doesn't it? But it says in verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Very significant spiritual work, wouldn't you agree? Very significant gospel work that in the name of Jesus Christ, there was a man unnamed in the gospels that was exercising demons for Christ's glory. That people were taken from spiritual death and bondage to spiritual life for Christ's sake. And how did the disciples respond? It says we tried to stop him. The picture is that they repeatedly and continuously tried to stop him. But it says here, why? Because he doesn't follow with us, Jesus. He's not part of our posse. And so the disciples just assumed that the exorcisms that were occurring as a result of this man's ministry were unsanctioned exorcisms, if there's such a thing. And how does Jesus respond? With an imperative, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. What's the point Jesus is saying? You can't be neutral about me. Anyone who's doing the work of God for Christ's sake and Christ's glory Is for Jesus. They're on team Jesus. And they're under the same umbrella of Jesus Christ as we are. William Hendrickson says in his commentary that we need to be careful as basically as good Presbyterians. Because there's a tendency among us to think that we're the cream of the crop and that we get everything right. And I would tend to agree that way. I I jokingly say with people all the time that we get everything 99.9% correct. And the reason I don't say 100% is I don't want to come across as arrogant. (laughs) But here's the reality. I know Matt McCraw at First Baptist Church in Bartow. And you you know what I know about Matt? Matt loves Jesus, and Matt preaches the gospel. I've had the privilege of meeting Josh Roberts over there at First Presbyterian Church across the street. You know what? There's some things we we do a lot better than they do. But you know what? Not everything. Because here's what I've learned about Josh. Josh loves Jesus. He understands the gospel. He preaches the gospel. And there might be a few things they do over there a lot better than we do around here. I said it. Why? Because you can't be neutral about Jesus. If they're for Jesus, the Jesus in the Gospels, then they're on Team Jesus. But I told you in this, we're reaching this major section of Luke's Gospel. We're really, uh, you could summarize the whole teaching under this large umbrella of a kingdom mindset. And so there's another passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 11 where this idea of 
a kingdom mindset is reiterated again, particularly about how you can't be neutral about Jesus. So if you'll turn over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, just a couple of pages probably in your Bible. I want us to read verses 14 through 23 and just kind of dig in a little bit deeper about this idea about how you can't be neutral about Jesus if you're going to be on Team Jesus. Now, this is talking about Jesus in verse 14 of Luke 11. Now, he, talking about Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And Jesus was repeatedly casting out demons. And we know that when Jesus cast out demons, he was displaying his divine, sovereign power over Satan and his minions. And it says in this particular instance that when a demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. And so the demonic power that was upon this person was... Uh, manifesting itself in such a way that it was causing the person to be mute and unable to speak. And immediately, Jesus heals this individual. They were able to speak, and look at what it says. They were marveled, but verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That's a pretty harsh accusation. In fact, we learned from the other Gospels that this is blasphemy. In fact, it's borderline blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because when you accuse someone of doing God's work, pardon me, when you accuse someone who is doing God's work of doing the devil's work, you're in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So you never want to accuse someone doing God's work of doing the devil's work. You want to be very careful about that. Who is Beelzebub? Well, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 1, you're going to learn about a king, Ahaziah, who had fallen through his lattice. And he wants to inquire of Baal if he'll be healed and be able to work again. And so we learn in 2 Kings chapter 1 that God is very angry at King Ahaziah because he's consulted with a false god, with an idol. Now there's discussion and debate among scholars about whether or not there's a play on this word. And I figured the teenagers really appreciate this. Do you know what Beelzebub may mean? Lord of dung. Isn't that fun? That's fun to talk about in the pulpit. But here's what's absolutely explicitly clear in the New Testament because the Holy Spirit inspired it. Beelzebub refers to the prince of demons, the devil. What's happening? Jesus has just exercised the demon... And Jesus is receiving a false accusation from others that are saying, he's doing the devil's work. How does Jesus respond? I'm going to give you the answer. You can't be neutral about Jesus. Look at what he says, verse 16 and up following. While others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven, they just persistently resist, and I could preach on that forever, but we'll skip over that for today. Verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Hey, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, but if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. What's happening? Jesus is saying, you're basically an idiot, my translation. Because if I'm casting out demons... By Satan's power, then Satan is shooting himself in the foot. You don't even have to be a worker at Taco Bell to understand that a work crew that does, that's divided against itself won't stand and can't even make tacos. And so Jesus says to them, but when your people cast out demons, you praise God for it. So by what power are they casting out demons? And then Jesus says, Verse 20, but it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. In other words, the power of God. And then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, I am the rule of God in your presence. 
And Jesus says this, and clue into the picture here because Jesus is the one who's whooping up on the strong man. The devil is the strong man. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. What is Jesus saying? Look, I'm whooping up on the devil. And I'm not whooping on the, up on the devil because I got the devil's power. But I'm whooping up on the devil because I'm stronger than he is. And the reason I'm able to exercise these demons is because I'm stronger than the devil. What's the point? Jesus is teaching his disciples that if you want to be on team Jesus, you cannot be neutral about Jesus. Gentlemen, I want to let you know that today is Super Bowl Sunday, in case you didn't know. But more importantly, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. And so if your wife told you, you don't have to get me anything, I assure you she did not mean it. <laughs> buy her a box of chocolate anyway, buy her the flowers anyway, even if she's on a diet and is allergic to flowers, do it anyway, do it anyway. But with that being said, today is Super Bowl Sunday, and, and I'm, I can't help but think of one of my dear friends, Jason Berger, who went to seminary with me in Charlotte, North Carolina. Jason and I went to Reform Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Jason is a dear friend of mine. He's a gentle giant, and he's from Cincinnati, Ohio, and he moved back to Cincinnati to plant a church that's named Threshold Church. And over the, the course of the last several weeks, as the Cincinnati Bengals have begun to make their way to the playoffs, I've tried to keep in touch with Jason about how excited he is. I asked him, I said, how are things going? He said, what's great is that our church is growing. I said, really? He said, oh, these people are superstitious up here. He said, they've all, in my private conversations with them, said, I just wish that God would allow the Cincinnati Bengals, to win this football game this week in advance. And he said, I encourage them to pray about it, and if God answered the prayer, to come to church the next Sunday. Well, sure enough, he did. So I noticed on social media every week he'd say, now for those of you that vowed to God that you'd be in church this Sunday, I'll see you at 11 a.m. Now it's okay to support the Cincinnati Bengals. It's okay not to support the Cincinnati Bengals, it's okay to not watch the Super Bowl and not give two hoots about football. You can be neutral and apathetic towards football. But what you cannot be apathetic and neutral about is Jesus. And so when it comes to Christ and his kingdom... Are you all in? Are you all in on Jesus? There's a lot of conversation that takes place in our church about discipleship and discipleship ministries. We by no means believe that we have arrived in any ministry, shape, or form whatsoever. I want you to know that. I don't think I've arrived in ministry either. We're all growing. We're all growing our sanctification. We're all growing our knowledge of Jesus. But over the last 25 years of ministry, here's what I've become convinced of. We will do what is most important to us. And so when it comes to Sunday school, when it comes to worship, when it comes to your involvement 
with this covenant body, you're going to do what's most important to you. And we know what's most important to us by taking a look at our calendar and our checkbook. So I'm asking you this morning, are we on the same team? Because what matters most is that we're on team Jesus. And if we're going to be on team Jesus, we've got to be all in. We can't ride the fence. There's no neutral ground. That's the first fact that we learn about Team Jesus is that you can't be neutral about Jesus. The second fact, the final fact we're going to learn about Jesus' kingdom today and Jesus' team is this, is that you must gather for Jesus. Take a look at what Jesus says in verse 23 of chapter 11. Jesus says, he takes the thought that he communicates in verse 50 of chapter 9 and he, he extends it in chapter 11 verse 23. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, thus you can't be neutral. Neutrality is a myth. By the way, that's a good, good way to get you out of jury duty, too. Learn that. Um, don't quote me on that one, but anyway. Delete that from YouTube. Um, chapter 11, verse 23 says, Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What's the second fact we learn about G- Team Jesus? What's the second fact we learn about the kingdom of God? What's the second fact we learned about a kingdom mindset in our passage today? It's this. You must be actively gathering for Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking. Now, Tanner, you're a good Calvinist. I know that for a number of reasons. I am. So I'm not denying the doctrine of election. I'm not denying the doctrine of predestination. I'm not denying the doctrine of God's effectual calling that no one comes to this to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit draws him, convinces him of his sin, convicts him of his sin, converts his heart, regenerates him, gives him the the gift of faith and repentance. I'm not denying that fact at all. That's all part of God's sovereign work, as J.I. Packer would say. But on the other side of that coin is human responsibility. And we know from the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That God ordinarily works through the means of grace, through the gospel being shared, either being preached publicly from a pulpit or in private conversation between friends, family members, and co-workers. What's the point? Are you being obedient? Are you sharing the gospel with your friends? Are you inviting people to worship on Sunday? You see, what's fascinating about this whole gathering and scattering concept is that we could, we could trace it forever down the whole line of redemptive history. Typically in the Old Testament, the idea of scattering is a sign of God's judgment. What happened when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden? They were scattered from the garden, weren't they? When they when, God, when the people of the earth tried to assemble themselves at the Tower of Babel, how did God punish them? He scattered them across the four ends of the earth, the four corners of the earth. And so the picture in the Old Testament of God being this actively in this great revival is that he would gather all of his people from the four corners of the earth to Mount Zion. And so the imagery here that Jesus says that he was not gathering with me, is scattering with me, is a picture of a shepherd who's trying to gather his sheep, not scatter them in chaos. And what do we see in the book of Acts? 
What do we see in church history? That God knows that he's got to scatter his people across the four corners of the earth. So that they can be obedient, gathering God's people by the sharing of the gospel. My question to you is, are you gathering for Jesus? I love the ARP church. I love our Presbyterian. I love our denomination. And because I love her, I will not turn a blind eye to some of our weaknesses. Over the past year, there was a particular minister whom I know and love. I have had a burger with him a number of times. He pastors a church in our denomination, not in our presbytery, that went on a podcast that is broadcast all over the world now. And he literally said this. He lamented the fact that a housing development was coming the way towards his church. Imagine that. He lamented the fact that a housing development, housing developments were coming the way of the church because it was going to ruin the rural feel of his church. Now, I was raised in West Virginia. I understand rural, and I'm an introvert, and I like being alone. I get it. But as a preacher of the gospel, a minister of the gospel, when you hear about a new housing development coming to your neck of the woods, shouldn't we be salivating? It's like you just heard, hey, preacher, they just stocked that pond down there with fish. Am I right? Listen, I don't mean to be harsh, but I will be. But Jesus says, if you're not busy gathering with me, you're scattering. And so if that man, young man or old man, feels really that way, I would challenge him whether or not he's really called Paul. To gospel ministry. Just to be frank with you. And I'll go, even, I'll go even a little bit further. And if his church is happy having a pastor like that, that's happy not gathering, but busy scattering, that church deserves to die. Because I'm not sure what good they are for the kingdom. Because Jesus says very explicitly in chapter 11, verse 23, He who does not gather with me scatters. I feel like I could be as harsh as Jesus is harsh. I could be as bold as Jesus is bold. Because that's the task. But enough about them, how about me and you? Not denying election, not denying effectual calling. Here's my question for you. How many people have you gathered for Jesus? Some of us have been here for a few years. Some of us have been here for decades. How many people have you gathered for Jesus' sake? Can I get real with you? Here's the reality. I love you and I love this church. 
And God called me here because I want to see this church not only survive, I want to see it thrive. So I'm going to shuck the corn with you this morning. I'm going to let you guess a number. On average, how many funerals do you think we have in this church every year? Three? Five? What do you think? Give me a number. Ten. Who said that? You love this church, you want to see it not only survive, but you want to see it thrive. Here's reality. And by the way, don't come back to me and say, well, Tanner's just all about the numbers. If we have on average, let's, 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 let's cut the number by in half. If on average we have five funerals a year at this church, do you know what that means? We need to see five professions of faith or five new members become a part of this church just to maintain. That's just to survive. That's not to thrive. Now, I'm not denying God's sovereignty. I know Jesus says he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But God has chosen to use ordinary means of grace to grow his church. That we share the gospel in private conversations and public proclamation. So my question to you is how many people have you gathered for Jesus? In fact, how many people over the last year have you even invited to church? Jesus says very harshly, if you don't gather with me, you scatter. I want to close with a true story that I heard this past week. And if I go past the hour, it's worth it because it's a good story. It's a true story. It's about Jesus. I have a friend by the name of Christy Owens, and I asked Christy yesterday if I could share her story, and she said, yes, I could. Christy is a friend of mine, and her mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer a number of months ago. Her mother went under the surgery that they would normally do. They thought she was in remission for a while, and then the the cancer came back very aggressively. The good news is that Christy is a believer. She's a follower of Jesus Christ. The bad news was that Christy's mother was not. And repeatedly, Christy had tried to share the gospel with her mother. Her mother was always hostile to that conversation and shut her down. A number of weeks ago, some of you are in the Sunday school class that I teach from time to time. Remember I shared with you to be in prayer for me about a phone call I was going to receive after the worship service. It was Christy. She was going to tell me whether or not her mother would allow me to come over and have a conversation with her and visit her. That Sunday, I did receive a call from Christy about 1 or 1.30 in the afternoon in tears. She said, Tanner, my mom refuses. She demands that you stay away. Christy was in absolute disappointment and devastation. So we talked about it. That God calls us to share the gospel, to be faithful in spreading the word, and we trust and we leave the results to God. And so Christy left and went back home knowing that the next time that she sees her mother might be the, ne- the last time she ever sees her mother. And sure enough, about a week or two later, Christy received a phone call from the hospice nurse begging her to get to the hospice 
unit as quickly as she could. That her mother didn't have days but had hours. Christy called some of her friends and her friends said, Christy, we promise we're going to be praying for you that your mother does not die. She does not pass until she repents of her sin and accepts Jesus as her Savior. Christy talked with me as she drove. We prayed and I encouraged her that hearing is always the last thing to go. And I encouraged her to keep on sharing the gospel with her mother regardless of whether or not she was responsive. Her mother not only lasted days, she lasted two weeks. And for those of you familiar with hospice care, they they tell you that eventually the the limbs will begin to grow cold as our body simply tries to protect the vital organs with heat. And so Christy monitored her mother's uh, vital signs as she noticed that her her mother's lower extremities were beginning to grow cold. And she noticed that, that her oxygen saturation level had dropped down to 39 And she called her friend and they prayed one last time. And her friend told her, Christy, I'm still praying that your mother doesn't die until she repents of her sin and accepts Jesus as her Savior. Christy said she went in, checked her mother's legs, and they were warm. True story. She checked her mother's oxygen saturation level. It was back up to 89, not at 38 or 39. She called the hospice nurse to come in, and and the hospice nurse was was astounded, confused, and said, I don't understand. Your mom's vital signs are great. And Christy said, I know. So the hospice nurse asked Christy to help her move her mother. And as they moved Christy's mother, Christy's mother's eye opened, and she winced in pain. And the hospice nurse looked at Christy and said, Christy, your mother can still hear you. You need to sit here in this chair and keep on talking to her. Tell her that you love her. Christy was gracious enough to tell me afterwards. She said, Tanner, I remember you telling me, hearing's the last to go. She said, the hospice nurse left left the room. I closed the door, and I sat down with Mama, and I grabbed my cell phone, and I said, okay, Mama. We beat around the bush about this time and time again. You've shut me down time again, but this time, you got to sit there and listen, because you can't talk back. And Christy said, Mama, I want you to know something. I've got friends praying that you're not going to leave this world until you get right with God. And Christy said, I think I read her every verse of the book of Romans. (laughs) But she read her basically the Romans wrote it. She said, Mama, the last time we talked, you were going to die and go to hell. Jesus is the King of kings, and you need to bow your heart to him right now. You need to repent. If you can repent, you need to pray and accept Jesus, because we're tired of sitting here watching you die. This is miserable for you. It's miserable for me. It's miserable for Daddy. And she prayed over her mommy. She left the room. It was 3 p.m. At 5.50 p.m., her mom passed. Christy called me. She said, Tanner, I don't know if I'll see my mom in heaven. But I shared the gospel with her faithfully to the end. And I told her, I said, Christy, you're on Team Jesus, darling. I know for a fact you're not neutral about Jesus, and you've done your best you can to gather people for Christ's sake. And we're going to lean on the fact That the word of God will not come back void.
I want us to be a church filled with Christiolas. I want us to be a church that is filled with people that not only know about Jesus, but know Jesus and can share Jesus when the time comes. Let's pray. King Jesus, we bend our knees before you right now. We bend our hearts. We surrender to you. Some of us need to surrender to you because we need to check our checkbooks and check our calendar because we say with our lips that you're our ultimate priority, but our lives prove differently. Others of us need to surrender to you because we're selfish, we're sinful, and we think that we can bridge the gap between us and you, a holy God. And so we need to bend our knee to Jesus and surrender to him as Lord of our life. But Lord, I trust that every single one of us in here needs to surrender to you. Because we tend to view ourselves by our vocation rather than our status in Christ. Help us to see ourselves as children of the King and missionaries. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.